come, you spirits, attend on mortal thoughts. Unsex me here. And fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood. Stop up the access and passage to remorse. That no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose. Nor keep peace between the effect and it. What if, when you hear an actor like Francis McDormand playing Lady Macbeth, you're actually hearing echoes of an actor who played the part over 200 years ago? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. If you were going to see Macbeth in late 18th century London, Sarah Siddons was the actor you wanted on the bill. Siddons transformed the way audiences saw Lady Macbeth from irredeemably evil to at least partially sympathetic. And Siddons' revolutionary portrayal still lingers in today's productions of Macbeth. Siddons and her brother John Philip Kemble grew up in a traveling theater troupe and rose to become two of the most famous names in London theater in their day. Siddons for her larger-than-life emotional performances and Kemble for his mastery of stagecraft. And their careers benefited from Shakespeare's rising critical and popular reputation in the 18th century. As scholar Fiona Ritchie of McGill University writes in a new book about the siblings, Kemble was the first stage director in our sense of the word, even though there was no such title in the 18th century theater. Likewise, Siddons became one of the first celebrity actors for her performances in roles like Queen Catherine and Henry VIII, Constance and King John, and Volumnia in Coriolanus. Here's Fiona Ritchie in conversation with Barbara Bogave. You write that you can still see the influence of Sarah Siddons in many performances today. Uh, Mm -hmm. For instance, in actors like Frances McDormand or Ruth Negga playing Macbeth, even though those actors might not even know who she was. So what are you picking up on in modern performances that, that harkens back to her? I think it's um, it's about this uh, attempt to make the character sympathetic, which until Siddons was not really the done thing. So 18th century audiences had a, a fairly large moral problem with Lady Macbeth for inciting her husband to ambition and to regicide. And Siddons was really one of the first actresses to think very carefully about the character and to want to try and create some sympathy for the character. And, you know, actors like uh, Frances McDormand and Ruth Negger have talked a lot in discussing their interpretations of the role about wanting to make her less than a fiend-like queen or to make her something different from that so that that the audience is really sympathizing with her as well as uh, seeing the, the evil of her deeds. And I think that is, is that sort of more complex interpretation traces back to Siddons. Hmm. So exploring shades of gray in exactly. every character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she was the reigning queen of the London stage for 20 years, which is kind of amazing because you talk to people now and, and even big uh, Shakespeare fans might not recognize her name. And she was often called the first real female star. Mm-hmm. I imagine like the the first Liz Taylor or Meryl Streep or something. <laughs> so, so why her? What was it about Siddons that enabled her to transcend just being a great actress uh, and enter into that lofty realm of celebrity? A number of things. I mean, she was a very talented actor, 
Um, she performed quite a wide range of roles. She linked herself to Shakespeare and Shakespeare's growing reputation. Siddons certainly knew that that Shakespeare was was a growing star and that by acting in Shakespeare's plays, she would uh, increase her own fame as well. She controlled her public image in terms of thinking about the ways in which her visual image circulated in portraiture. She took control uh, to some degree over what was reported about her in the press and tried to influence press reports about her performances. Uh, that's really interesting about her, her ability to shape her image. I mean, it sounds like she, she was controlling her brand in a, in a new kind of way for an actress. Yeah, she's definitely trying to do that, I think. And, and one way that comes across is um, with her status as a mother, with her maternity. So she had um, seven children across the course of her career. And she would often sort of use them <laughs> in her performances or in the public discourse around her performances. So very early on in her career, when she left the, the Bath stage to move to London um, and the Bath audience were upset about her leaving them, she advertised on the playbill for her final performance that she would be bringing onto the stage her th three reasons for leaving the Bath Theatre. And she didn't tell any of the actors in the company what she was planning to do, but she brought her three children onto the stage and said, these, these children are the reasons that I need to leave you. I need to go to London to make some more money so I can support my growing family. Uh, so she sort of used her maternal status as a way to gain sympathy from the audience, but also as a way to... Uh, offset the critiques of avarice that she was often subjected to, that a woman should not be ambitious in terms of wanting a, a career that was financially successful. Wow, it makes me think she would have slayed on Instagram. <laughs> she totally would. I think she would really have had uh, had some uh, some good uh, things going on there and sort of ways to deal with, with the public uh, coming after her. Okay, turning to John Campbell, her brother, who played opposite her as Macbeth, was his acting method and his his stature equally transformative uh, of these theatrical conventions of the day? I think she was by and large regarded as the better actor. So the, the commentary at the time often will compare the two and say, well, you know, she was the better performer, but there was something really special that happened when they performed together. And it was... I think partly about the fact that they were related and knew each other really well and so could respond to each other very well in performance. Their acting styles were quite complementary. So in addition to Siddons' grandiose style, Kemble was possibly even more grandiose. He was very tall, very striking, very dignified, also quite sort of statuesque and sometimes a little bit immobile <laughs> in terms of his, his physique. So how did this brother-sister team start acting? They were part of a theatrical family. So Siddons was the oldest child and, and Campbell was the next sibling. Uh, they had several other brothers and sisters, all of whom also went into the theatre profession. And they were the children of acting parents. So their, their father, Roger Campbell, and his wife, Sarah Campbell, nay Ward, were managers of a provincial theatre company in the West Midlands in the mid-18th century. And in fact, Sarah Ward, their mother, was descended from a theatrical family as well. So Roger Campbell married the daughter of his theatre manager when he was starting out in his early days. So we're talking about three generations of yeah, actors. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. So they were born in a trunk. Yes. 
basically. And they, they were all, all the siblings were born in different places in England or in England and Wales. And all of those places were places that Roger Kemble's company toured to. So you can sort of trace the theatrical circuit from where all the children were born as they were traveling <laughs> on the road. And was the whole family known for their Shakespeare productions? I mean, how, how did Siddons and Kemble become so known for, for Shakespeare? Shakespeare would have been a key part of the repertoire, really, for any uh, theatre company travelling in the provinces at that time. So they sort of had to know Shakespeare by default, really, growing up in that environment. And I thought it went back to the grandparents as well. Yes, it is. The grandparents said their company was the first to do a performance, or first recorded performance of Shakespeare in Stratford-on-Avon. It was, I think, to raise funds for a statue in the church. So it was, yeah, a very early example of Shakespeare performance in Stratford and, and Siddons and Kemble are directly uh, descended from that line. Wow. Well, let's track Siddons' rise first okay. because she hit it big before her brother. Um, so she had these years in regional theater and then she had her London debut on Drury Lane, but apparently it didn't go so well. She didn't set the theater world <laughs> on fire right away. Why not? That's right, yeah. She she appeared as Portia in The Merchant of Venice in 1775. Um, and a lot of different reasons have been posited for why she didn't succeed. I think possibly the theatre was much larger than the ones that she had been used to performing in. And so she didn't have the, the right kind of acting style to reach all of the spectators in this 3,000-seat auditorium compared to the much smaller places that, that she would have been acting before, notably in, in Cheltenham, where the theatre, I think, was a converted uh, barn and was described by some people very um, very sniffily as, as being very unsophisticated. So it's a change of environment. Other critics have said that the, that the role that was chosen for her debut uh, wasn't the best choice for her. So as Portia, she was very good as, uh, in the declamatory aspects of that part and especially in the famous speeches, the quality of mercy and so on. But what Siddons also became famous for later was the emotional dimension of her roles. And, and Portia was seen as a part that didn't really give her much opportunity to move the audience and to really make them feel with her. And so when she made her second debut, she chose a different part, which was much more emotional. And I'll add a, another reason that, that's been suggested by Chelsea Phillips, who's recently been working on um, actresses and pregnancy in the 18th century, is that Siddons had recently given birth. And so, you know, may not have been quite ready to return to work at that point or may still have been struggling, you know, physically from the after effects of, of having her, her child at that time. Hmm. So, so for a number of reasons, she wasn't really ready. And she went back to regional theater and got, got in her, it sounds like her 10,000 hours. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And she went, to, she went to slightly more, maybe a slightly more sophisticated theater. So she went to Bath, which uh, was really one of the, the theater scenes in the country that was growing and, and had a very respectable audience. She acted there for, for quite some time and then was ready to go back to London afterwards. And that the management had changed at Drury Lane, so they were willing to give her another try in 1782. And that's where she really hit it. And it looks like she paved the way for her brother then after that, because he debuted a year after her in, in a starring role in, in Ham, the starring role in Hamlet. Yeah. And then he became known for it. So what kind of Hamlet was he? he his Hamlet was... Uh, famous for his what, what were called new readings. So he was a very intellectual performer. He was a scholar, really, and he liked to base his interpretations on the text and on reading as many different versions of the text as he possibly could and on reading Shakespeare criticism. And at this time, there was really this idea that, 
you followed the interpretation of the previous generation of actors. And so to offer a new reading could be seen as a little bit audacious. So when he did make changes, they were um, they were often not taken very well by the audience who were used to seeing Hamlet performed in a particular way. It took a little while for him to convince people that what he was doing was a legitimate interpretation of Shakespeare. But slowly introducing these kind of new scholarly readings allowed him to, to change the way that Hamlet was seen. Okay, now this is really interesting because it's so different from today. And what what I understood you're, what you're describing is that there was a theatrical convention of actors owning specific roles. Mm-hmm. So the people who came before Campbell, you know, owned Hamlet or the last one who came before it, which would have, would have been who? It would have been Garrick would be the most memorable predecessor as Hamlet. I think other people would have performed it in the interim, but Garrick retired in 1775. So he's really the most memorable recent performer. So did that mean if Garrick was still alive, even very elderly, you couldn't perform Hamlet yet? I think, well, Garrick had had left the stage, so somebody needed to act Hamlet if you wanted to have Hamlet on the stage. But even if if Kemble or others were allowed to perform Hamlet, there was a sense that the audience wanted Hamlet as Garrick had performed it. Mm, mm. So if you imitated Garrick, you might get by, but yes, exactly. But to well, come that up... you'd have to be, you'd have to, you'd have to take some time to convince the audience that you, that if you were doing something different, that it was valid. Hmm. So um, did that did that shape then the development of Kemble and Siddons' careers? This convention as Shakespeare stars. From very early on, there seems to have been a, a desire to see them act together in in Shakespeare plays, and the first play they, the first Shakespeare play they acted in was King John. But uh, what they, the play that they became most famous in in acting together was Macbeth. But it took quite a while before they were able to perform in that together on a regular basis, and that was because William Smith, another actor at the time, was the owner of the part of Macbeth. So they, Siddons and Kemble first acted Macbeth in a, in a benefit performance um, for Siddons quite early in her career, but it took a few more years before William Smith retired, before Kemble could then properly acquire that role and then could, could perform regularly in Macbeth with his sister. Tricky business. Mm. But such a big part of their success was that they were this brother-sister team. Was it common at the time for siblings to perform together? Was that a, a common gimmick? And not to my knowledge, actually. I mean, I think that the Kemble family was were known for being related, and there's often commentary about Siddons and Kemble performing together or performing with their brothers, Charles and Stephen, and how the family likeness, if they were performing together as family members, sort of added an extra dimension to the play. But there weren't that many other examples that I found of brothers and sisters performing together. There were fathers and daughters and and mothers and daughters and sons and so on. But the sibling angle seems to have been a little bit unique for them. And their first big uh, high-profile Shakespeare play together was King John. Yes. As you said, which was really popular in this period. It's not often produced now, but it's very uh, emotional. They're very emotive roles that they were playing mm-hmm. in King John. Tell us about it. And how, how was it received? What, what was the key to their success? So when I first started researching this, I found a lot of commentary that said that, that there was a, a desire for the audience to see Siddons and Campbell acting in the same Shakespeare play together. And apparently it may have been um, King George III that actually requested 
the specific play of King John. It was de definitely done as a command performance for royalty. But when I started researching this particular play, I found actually that they don't really have a lot of stage time together. They don't really appear together. So it's more, in this case, a vehicle, a play that's a vehicle for them both to be in the same play, but not necessarily interacting. And that wasn't true for all of the, the plays that they appeared in, but in this case it was. So Siddons' role as Constance was very emotional. She was a wronged mother who was protecting her son, and that really allowed her to, to show the way that she excelled in performing pathos and in performing maternity. And Kemble as King John was quite villainous, quite aloof, and again, that sort of suited his more statuesque style. Oh, so it sounds like the roles were so perfect for each of them that it was more about the roles fitting as opposed yeah. to them being together in this whole brother-sister act. Yeah, I think so. Sidden sounds unusual for her acting style. It sounds like she was almost like a method actor. And you describe how she, when she was off stage during a performance, that she insisted that her dressing room door stay open so that she could still hear the play and still be connected to the emotional current of it. That seems so modern to me. Yes, and she, I think she was quite unusual for that. And she wrote about this in her memoirs. And the example, well, the example she gives is King John, where she said uh, she went off stage as Constance and then made sure that her dressing room door was left open so she could hear all of the events that were taking place on stage, which were things that would uh, would affect Constance later in the play. So she could build up her the, the right tone of emotion for when she eventually had to reappear on stage. How did she come up with that idea, do you think? I don't know. I, I, I wonder if it was um, maybe from acting in these smaller theatres where the dressing rooms would have been really close to the stage or maybe there weren't really any dedicated dressing rooms and so actors were sort of always watching what was going on around them on the stage even when they weren't on stage or from being a child and being backstage at so many performances that her parents might have starred in while not actually acting herself. I think she sort of got this sense that to, to really get into the character you needed to to think about the play as a whole and not just the bits in which you were speaking, which again was somewhat unusual because it was only fairly recently that uh, actors had started to be given the, the full text of the play and not just their parts and cues to, to learn from. Well, she played Desdemona and Ophelia and uh, Lumnia, but, but her other big success was Queen Catherine and Henry VIII. And you mm -hmm. write that uh, she told Samuel Johnson it was her favorite role. Why was that a standout? I think, again, possibly because it, it's a role that doesn't involve any sort of romance, I guess, that she's a sort of very uh, moral character who's been wronged. Um, this, the character of the wronged woman was really something that, that Siddons excelled at and expressing this dignity in the face of having been wronged by those around her. So I think that that's why Queen Catherine allowed her to, to achieve a particular success. Siddons also played Hamlet, the role her brother was famous for. So who, who was the better Hamlet? Well, she played it first, <laughs> as ah. far as we know. Siddons started performing Hamlet in 1775 when she was beginning her career in the regions. And we know that she performed it in Worcester, in Manchester, in Liverpool, in Bath. She never performed it on the London stage. And then Kemble made his debut as Hamlet in, in, at Drury Lane in 1782. And it may be that once Kemble had claimed that role in London, Siddons didn't want to attempt it because it would be seen as a direct challenge to her brother. It may be that she was 
developing her reputation as a respectable woman and that dressing as a man to act Hamlet might have been seen as less than respectable at the time. But she did actually go back to the part later in her career in 1802 in Dublin. So again, not on the London stage, but it it was a part that she returned to. And there are several, from the 1802 performance, there are several commentators who, who saw Siddons perform and also speculated about her Hamlet versus that of her brother and, and why they thought that she was she was the better of the two performers. Okay, you anticipated my question about how common uh, or uncommon a female Hamlet was in this period or how audiences thought about mm-hmm. a woman crossing gender in, in drama. Siddons was not the first female Hamlet. The first female Hamlet that we know of is um, an actress called Fanny Furnival who performed it in Dublin in the 1740s. And interestingly enough, Fanny Furnival trained Siddons' father, Roger Kemble, when he was acting in a regional company as a young man. So there may be some traces of Fanny Furnival's Hamlet in Siddons' Hamlet through her father. Charlotte Chark also acted, or claims to have acted Hamlet in the 18th century. And then Jane Powell was the, the, the most famous Hamlet, female Hamlet on the London stage. So it wasn't necessarily unusual. Siddons had a very vexed relationship with cross-dressing roles. She really didn't like performing them. The role that made her name in Cheltenham and that got her invited to Drury Lane was Rosalind in As You Like It. And Henry Bate, who was the observer sent by Garrick to, to go and watch her perform and, and to report back, said that she was she was good in breaches and she'd be even better once she'd delivered her child because she was heavily pregnant at the time. <laughs> he said he had to use his imagination to kind of imagine her figure <laughs> because she was too heavily pregnant. But I mean, that's the thing. She had so many kids. I mean, she gave what, birth to seven, and I imagine, I'm guessing there were maybe some miscarriages, so maybe more pregnancies even than that. So she was often performing while she was pregnant. How did 18th century audiences think about about that? I think they didn't really care. They just sort of went along with it. They didn't really need this kind of verisimilitude. I think the dress of the time, this sort of empire waist, probably concealed a lot of the pregnancy too. Uh, it doesn't seem to be have been an issue, really, and it doesn't really come up all that much in the commentary. I think there's some very interesting resonances to be traced, like how an audience would think about seeing a pregnant Lady Macbeth, for example, doing the the speech I have given suck. But uh, yeah, the audience seemed to have sort of rolled with it, really, and, and not been too worried about seeing pregnancy on the stage. Well, that's good for her because she was really curvaceous. I mean, she was a Zoftig... Uh... Uh, buxom actress, right? Even and when she wasn't t- pregnant. Yeah, towards the end of her career, there's a lot of criticism of her being too fat or too round, yeah. So they could overlook pregnancy, but not overweight. But not, yeah, no, not not overweight, definitely not. There's an anecdote towards the end of her career about um, performing Queen Catherine and having to be pulled up out of the chair because she tried to stand up and the chair was stuck to her. But I don't know if that's <sighs> true or not, but it's it's pretty harsh. Some things never change. Exactly, yeah. And was Kemble, uh, did he go for this immersive stuff or, or any of the early method acting like his sister? No, he seems to have been much more about the scholarly approach. So reading the text and, and thinking about textual variants and kind of researching the history of obscure words and their meanings. That was really his, his way into it was, was through the text and through historical study. He was such a different animal from his sister. He he went on to become a manager of Drury Lane and, and later of Covent Garden. What's his legacy as a theater producer and theater director? I think it's really that he was maybe the first modern director. 
in the sense that he thought about the entirety of the play, the overall picture of the play and the overall interpretation of it. So when he wanted to produce Coriolanus, for example, he did a lot of research into ancient Rome, into costuming, into the kind of props that would have been used. And he brought all of that to the play. So he's really trying to sort of build the world of ancient Rome on the stage, even if that ancient Rome was very anachronistic. It was different to what had been done before. And it was trying to create this this stage picture, this overall interpretation of the entirety of the play, which seems sort of obvious to us now, but I think at the time was not necessary the way that people proceeded when they were putting Shakespeare on the stage. Campbell was getting into stage design and props Mm -hmm. and music, processions, costuming, all of that. So that that traverses a lot of ground there. Yeah, and part of that, again, is the the size of the the theatres that he's dealing with, that he has to add all these extra elements because the stages of Drury Lane and Covent Garden are so large, they need a lot of stuff to fill them. And the spectators are often so far away that they need sort of visuals to capture their attention if if they can't hear the lines of the play. So it's partly about the realities of the theatre that he's working in. But he also, I think, enjoyed the opportunity to have this very lavish, to create these very lavish spectacles. Well, on a, on a darker note... He also exemplified modern director stereotypes in that he he apparently tried to rape an actress. He did, yes. Apparently backstage he uh, sexually assaulted Maria Theresa de Camp, who was a member of the Drury Lane Company at that time in 1795. Um, she seems to have created enough fuss and noise that other members of the company came to help her. But it created quite a scandal. He had to apologize profusely in the press but uh, the nature of that apology reads to us, I think, as, as very problematic in that he he talked about uh, how she didn't deserve the conduct that he'd displayed to her as if anyone did. And a lot of the other commentary around this uh, at the time and even very recently, you know, as recently as the 60s and 70s and 80s, has talked about how Kemble was drunk. And that was why he assaulted this beautiful young actress. So all of these accounts, even in the Biographical Dictionary and the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography talk about how uh, de Camp was an enticing, attractive young woman and, and Kemble was drunk and therefore he couldn't, he couldn't resist and that's why he assaulted her. Um, wow, I'm not, I'm not sure I like Kemble at all that much. Uh, you, you're right, he also got caught up in a literary hoax, uh, a yes, phony Shakespeare yeah. play. What was that all about? So this was the play Vortigern, which was uh, discovered, in inverted commas, by a young man named William Henry Ireland. He claimed to have discovered a whole cache of uh, Shakespearean manuscripts. And the centerpiece of, of this discovery was this play Vortigern, which he said was a new historical tragedy written by Shakespeare. And he brought it to Drury Lane. Um, of course, it later transpired that Ireland had written the entire thing himself. It was a complete fabrication. At that point, Kemble was the the manager of Drury Lane, the stage manager. So he was sort of directing the plays and involved in in the staging. But the theatre's proprietor and main manager was Richard Brinsley Sheridan. Um, He was the money behind the operation and he had the overall say over the repertoire and what was being produced. So Sheridan basically made Kemble stage Vortigern. Kemble didn't really like it, didn't really believe it was Shakespearean, but felt like he had to perform it. Sheridan probably didn't believe it was Shakespearean either, but he realized that whether it was by Shakespeare or not, it was going to bring in a lot of people 
to watch it and would make him a lot of money. All publicity so, is good publicity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, so Kemble was kind of backed into a corner in that way. He was, um, but he he behaved quite disingenuously about it. He initially pushed for the, the play's debut to happen on April Fool's Day on the 1st of April, which was very snide. He's also accused of pronouncing some lines in the play with uh, particular emphasis to draw laughter from the audience. So there was there's a line in the play, when this solemn mockery is over. And apparently he um, repeated that several times in a sort of knowing way to the audience until they until they realized that he was trying to apply that to the situation of Vortiga and the play itself and, and burst into laughter. He was also accused of, of miscastings in the play, of not rehearsing it properly, of not providing the proper cuts to make it fit for the stage. A lot of this criticism came from William Henry Ireland and his father, Samuel. But a lot of it, at least some of it, was was justified, I think. Kemble was really trying to weasel out of, of having this play performed and having to star in it himself, which he really did not want to do. And Siddons, did she have any part in this? Well, William Henry Island wrote the, the lead female role, Edmunda, for Siddons, but Siddons basically refused to perform in it. So she wasn't under the same kind of pressure from Sheridan. Uh, so she pleaded ill health. And there are a lot of letters between Samuel and William Henry Island and the theatre asking, you know, is she well again yet? Is she going to perform in it? So she weaseled out of it, basically, and left Kemble to deal with, with this fake play. Well, we're running out of time, but I I do want to ask about this complicated relationship of these siblings because <laughs> at the end of their careers, it seems as if Kemble got a lot of public attention when he retired, but Siddons' retirement just seemed to cause a, a trickle. Siddons' retirement at the time was was quite significant, I think, that um, there's an anecdote about how the curtain came down at the end of the sleepwalking scene in Macbeth when she was playing Lady Macbeth for the final time because the audience didn't want to see any more of the play once she left the stage. So that was the way that her her career finished. But the difference with Kemble was that he was manager as well. And so he had this greater sphere of influence and he was celebrated not just for his acting, but for his management so there were various things that happened to celebrate Kemble's retirement. There was a, a commemorative medal that was struck. There was a, a celebratory farewell dinner uh, with uh, tickets that were issued only to gentlemen and so on. There was a, a pamphlet that gave an authentic narrative of his retirement from the stage and described his final performance in detail. And these were things that that didn't happen for Siddons and that did happen for Kemble. And that Siddons herself uh recognized was a double standard that was being applied to her brother as a male actor compared to to herself. Right. She said something about it and she got flack for her reaction to... to yeah, she, she said yeah. maybe in the next world women will be more recognized than they are in this. Um, and even very recent biographers have described that as jealousy on Siddons' part. When I think hopefully now we could agree that it's probably just realism in, in calling out a double standard on how male and female stars are treated. Yeah, it's poignant. She's very yeah. good at poignancy. Yes, she is. She had, she had a good way with words. She was even excluded from, um, from the, the dinner, the celebratory dinner that was organized for her brother when he retired because only gentlemen were invited. I mean, I think if she had been there, she would have been a little bit salty about it, understandably, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, she was, I think, also annoyed at being being shut out of that occasion. But she did seem to be extremely beloved uh, or valued, judging by her funeral. Uh, it seems like there was a massive crowd, thousands of people. 
Yeah, there were thousands of people. Um, it was a real procession and, and outpourings of grief um, as, as at the funeral procession and so on. So she really was very beloved by the public, definitely. Well, who's better known now? I mean, who's, who's famous stood the test of time? Siddons, I think. Siddons is certainly the better known name compared to Campbell. And there's, I think, more traces of Siddons in popular culture. So there's the uh, the Hollywood film All About Eve, directed by Joseph Mankiewicz, that um, has the the what was then a fictitious Sarah Siddons Society presenting the Sarah Siddons Award to the Best Actress that inspired a creation of the real Sarah Siddons Society that does now award that prize annually. So she's sort of become synonymous with with excellence in acting. Endlessly fascinating. And, and talking with you is too. Thank you so much for the conversation and for the book. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Fiona Ritchie's book, Shakespeare in the Theater, Sarah Siddons and John Philip Kimball, is out now from Arden Shakespeare. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Ellen Payne-Smith in Montreal, Quebec, and Jenna McClellan at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs, Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so that you never miss an episode. And please leave a review so that others can find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.